I would invite you to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would simply speak through me by the power of your spirit. And would you translate these words, Lord, to the the context, the, the specific situations represented by each person here today, and anyone to listen later. We pray, Lord, that you would work and move. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, in our church library is one of my boy's favorite storybooks. It's written by Francis Chan, and it's called The Big Red Tractor. So there's your mystery solved. Now, in the story of The Big Red Tractor, there is a little village that every year had to work very, very hard to plant and harvest their one little field. And even though they owned this big red tractor, the problem was that no one actually knew how to make the tractor run. No one knew how it operated. So while half the villagers pushed and the other half pulled, they ever so slowly rolled their big red tractor through the field and planted their crops. Now this is where all of you who drive green would be vindicated, right? If they had a green tractor, it'd be working just fine. No pushing or pulling required, right? Now, after pushing and pulling their big red tractor through the field every year, after all of their hard work, toil, and labor, at the end of the year, there was just enough food to feed their little village. Then one winter's day, one of the villagers named Farmer Dave was cleaning out his attic when he discovered the owner's manual for the big red tractor. It explained how the tractor had been made, and it showed powerful things that no one knew it could do. Excited, Farmer Dave stayed up all night studying the owner's manual. And the next morning, he gathered all the villagers together, and he told them, The big red tractor can move on his own. If we fix him, he could plow the entire field in just one day. But no one believed him. They just laughed and said, It sounds like a fairy tale. Too good to be true. And they went back to their work. But Farmer Dave didn't stop believing what he'd read in the owner's manual, and so every night he stayed up late studying it and working on the tractor. Finally, after many nights, the tractor was ready. Dave was ready, and he jumped up onto the big red tractor, turned the key, and putt-putt kaboom. It didn't explode. No, the tractor roared to life. Dave began plowing the field that night, and he had so much fun that he finished the entire field that very night. While the next morning, the villagers awoke to discover that their weeks and weeks of labor had been done for them. No one knew how this could have happened. Who did this, they shouted. Then they looked, and there was Farmer Dave sleeping on the big red tractor. While the villagers all shouted happily, Farmer Dave was right. The owner's manual is true. And in the weeks to come, the villagers multiplied their efforts planting and harvesting many fields, leaving them with such an abundance of produce that they were able to share with nearby villages in need. And the story concludes, Did you know that you are just like the big red tractor? The Bible tells us that if we try to do things on our own, we won't accomplish very much. But if we trust in Jesus, God gives us his spirit, so we'll have new power, the power to love others and tell them about God. You are the big red tractor, or if you like, if it helps you, you are the big green tractor, all right? This metaphor is for us. God has given us his spirit, and he wants us to access the power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us clearly, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now many Christians are just like those villagers in the story. Yes, they're doing the things they're supposed to be doing. They're they're spreading the seed of God's word. They're toiling in the fields of his service. But they're pushing and pulling their witness, their faith, and their service around in their own strength. And all the while, they're wondering, why is it so hard? And why is so little being accomplished? Now, of course, no farmer would ever be so foolish as to attempt to use his tractor without the engine being turned on. But this is exactly what happens when we as followers of Jesus Christ fail to recognize, to be filled by and rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. The famous pastor and writer A.W. Tozer once said this, The doctrine of the Spirit as it relates to the believer has been shrouded in mist. A world of confusion has surrounded this truth. This confusion has not come by accident. An enemy has done this. Satan knows that spiritless evangelicalism is as deadly as modernism or outright heresy. And he has done everything in his power to prevent us from enjoying our true Christian heritage. I'm going to repeat that line again. Satan knows that spiritless evangelicalism is as deadly as modernism or outright heresy. In other words, we can have all of our doctrine in a row, we can have all of the right actions and things, but if we don't have the Spirit, we're missing something very, very essential. Core to what it it means to live a Christian life. And so today being Pentecost Sunday, we want to focus in on that vital role that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Pentecost always takes place on the seventh Sunday following Easter. So if you count back in your calendar, it's seven Sundays since Easter. Now what's significant about the number seven? Anyone? How many days are there in a week? Seven. On what day did God rest? Seventh day. Seven is God's perfect number. It's the number of completion. And so it's highly symbolic that now on the seventh Sunday... Following Easter, the the big event of Jesus defeating sin and death and hell itself, he rises from the dead, and seven weeks later, it's complete. The Holy Spirit is sent, sealing his work, empowering his disciples to carry it out until the day of his return. And so the importance of this event can just not be overstated. As I've said before, There is simply no Christian life apart from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't exist. It never has existed. It never will exist. There are are fakers. There are pretenders. But there is no genuine Christian life apart from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Adding to that, there can be no lasting ministry, no work accomplished apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Quite simply, the Holy Spirit is indispensable and irreplaceable. Galatians chapter 5 verse 25 says this, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So what the Apostle Paul is driving at here is the fact that there are too many people who once saved by the Spirit are in effect saying to God, after this, now that you've saved me, I don't need you anymore. I will live out the Christian life by my own power. 
But to that attitude, Paul gives an emphatic no. Don't do it, can't do it. To simply exchange keeping the Old Testament law by by human effort, by gritting our teeth and saying, yes, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments, to trade that for attempting to keep the New Testament teaching by our human efforts, gritting our teeth and saying, yeah, I'm going to do it. Well, that's just trading one form of legalism for another. That's like dragging the big red tractor around in the field and wondering why following Christ and living for him is so hard. But let me ask you, did Jesus come to make it more difficult to live a life pleasing to God? Did he come to make the yoke heavier? You know, the Mosaic law was heavy. There were, there were hundreds upon hundreds of laws that, that the Jews needed to keep. Um, I think there was somewhere over 700 of them. I, I used to know the exact number, but there's a lot. Trust me on that. It was a heavy yoke, and the Pharisees kept adding to it, making the yoke heavier and heavier. So did Jesus come to add to that burden to make it more difficult? Consider this. If you attempt to keep all of Jesus' teaching by your own strength, how successful will you be? You know, things like love your enemies. Hmm, that's a tough one all by itself. Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive others 70 times 7. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in the eyes of God. On and on we go. Jesus upped the ante of the law. He didn't make it easier. He made it harder. And if you attempt to keep those solely by your own strength, yes, he did make it more difficult. The yoke would be heavier. But now remember what Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus did not come to give us this impossibly high standard to live out, and then on top of that, an entire world to evangelize on our own and then say, all right, I'm leaving you now, but I expect you to have all of this done by the time I get back. Now get to it, disciples. Go do the job. Evangelize the world. And I'll I'll be coming back to inspect your work when I'm done. That's not what he did. He said his yoke is easy. Why? Why is his yoke easy? Because Jesus is pulling right alongside us. A yoke. Two oxen yoked together. We are yoked with Jesus. He is in the yoke beside us, pulling right alongside next to us. We're not doing this on our own. Because right before leaving back for heaven when he ascended, he gave the disciples this mission and he says, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so this begs, of course, the obvious question. If Jesus was leaving them, how could he still be with them to the end of the age? And as I just attempted to teach to the children, the answer is simple yet profound. It is simple, yet it is a mystery. Jesus is with us to the very end of the age by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The great mystery of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that where one of them abides, they all abide. Try to wrap your head around that one for a moment. Where one of them abide, they all abide. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfect in unity. They are never divided. They are together in in unity, in purpose, and in presence. 
And the Apostle John's writing explains this mystery most clearly. So listen carefully. If you want to turn there, you can. John chapter 14, Jesus' prayer to his disciples in verses 16 to 20, he records Jesus' words. John 14, beginning in verse 16. The Lord Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And then we jump ahead to verse 23. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So here in this passage, we see Jesus says to his disciples, I'm leaving, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will send to you another helper, the advocate, the spirit of truth. And he would come to them and then notice the plural. In verse 23, my father will love him, and we, not he, we, plural, will come to him and make our home with him. Our. Jesus is not just saying the Holy Spirit's just coming. No, I am coming. I'm coming to you. And the father as well. We are coming to make our home in him. And then in 1 John 2 verse 24, John provides further clarity. He says, whoever keeps his commandments remains in God and God in him. And by this we know that he remains in us by the spirit he has given us. So what does this mean for you and me? What does this, how does this translate? Well, it means that the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you've asked him to forgive you of your sins. You ask him to enter into your life and make you brand new. What this means is that both the Father and the Son make their home in you by the Spirit he graciously gives us. How incredible is that? How incredible that the holy, holy, holy God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, has chosen to make us, that's you, that's me, us, he's chosen to make us his dwelling place. He's chosen to make us his home. I will come and make my home with you. How incredible. Paul goes further to say that we are the temple of the living God. That is why there is no no more need of a physical temple here on earth. You and I, we, God's children, are now his, his temple, his dwelling place. God Almighty is going around in our bodies. How incredible. And of this truth, R.A. Torrey states, If we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, holiness, and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts, to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them. It will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought 
that a person of divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to use even me. Incredible. God Almighty has made us, his children, his home. We can take that by faith today. Now, if you find this concept of the Trinity a little confusing and a little mysterious and and the prospect of God Almighty living within you a little bit overwhelming, then rest assured you're not alone. There's a great story of a little girl who, on the way home from church, hearing a sermon probably similar to this, turned to her mother and said, Mommy, the preacher's sermon this morning confused me. And the mother said, Oh, why is that? And the girl replied, Well, he said that God is bigger than we are. In fact, he's bigger than the whole universe. Is that true? Yes, that's true, the mother replied. He also said that God lives within us. Is that true too? Again, the mother replied, Yes, that's true. Well, said the girl, If God is bigger than us and he lives in us, then shouldn't he be sticking out? Confusing, but also a profound truth. Because you see, we don't need to fully understand the mystery of the triune God in order for him to indwell us through faith and then begin transforming us from within in such a way that he truly begins to stick out of our lives. And this is essentially the point that Paul makes throughout his letters. That if we're being filled and led by the Spirit, then God is going to stick out in everything that we say, do, and think. And to others, the evidence of that change will become increasingly obvious. You know, on Pentecost Sunday, when the Spirit came down, the wind whipped through the rafters of the house, everything's shaking, there's there's something like tongues of fire over their heads. If you had asked Peter or John, what's happening right now? Explain this to me. Explain the the science behind it. What's this phenomena? What's going on? Peter probably just would have, huh? I'm not quite sure. But then, by the power of the Spirit, when people ask, what's happening? What, what is this? Suddenly, the light bulb goes on, and Peter begins explaining. This is what Joel talked about way back, hundreds of years ago. And he begins explaining what is happening. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. People could not deny it. Further than that, people could not deny that I'm understanding him speak in a different language than the one he's actually speaking, and yet I fully comprehend it in my native tongue. All of these things defy explanation. It's a phenomenon that only can be accredited to the power of God. It is a mystery, but the evidence is undeniable. And so too in the life of a believer... Someone says, well, explain to me, how does the fullness of God come and dwell within you by the Spirit and Jesus and all of this? And yeah, it's a little confusing, but the evidence speaks for itself. If we are being transformed and empowered, point to the evidence and say, I don't know exactly how, I just know it is so. Jesus is in me. And look at the evidence he is making in the change in my life. The disciples were empowered to speak in tongues they didn't know. People said they're drunk. Explain to me how this is working if guys were just drunk. I've heard guys who are drunk before. Yeah, it may sound like they're speaking a different language, but you can't understand it. It, It's babbling. It's incoherent. And there was such a commotion. People came to see what's going on. And here we see this guy, Peter, who, who just weeks before was the guy denying Jesus, the guy who, who was always putting his foot in his mouth, 
But he stands up, he preaches a sermon so powerful, so convicting, that people not only listen, but so many believe that they baptized 3,000 people that day the church was born, and here we are today as evidence that it was no fluke. People want to say, well, what evidence is there for Christianity being true? Let me point to 11 fishermen. Well, not all of them are fishermen. Some of them had been tax collectors and zealots. and You know, none of them were entirely um, credible. In fact, the most credible of the bunch was Judas, and he, of course, was the betrayer. Let me point to 11 guys and say, here we are today, billions of people on planet Earth bearing the name of Christ. That's powerful evidence to say that what is happening through the power of the Holy Spirit, though it is a mystery, though it defies human explanation, the evidence itself is undeniable. The Holy Spirit makes all the difference. And so now with having laid that out, I'd like to try to run rapid fire through a couple of questions regarding the Holy Spirit. The first one is obvious. How do I receive the Holy Spirit? You receive the Spirit at the exact moment that you repent of your sins and place faith in Jesus Christ to save you. In Acts 2 verse 38, when the, when the crowd asked after hearing his message, what must we do? Peter declared to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I love that he put in those who are far off because that's us. Two millennia later, and here we are, all who are far off, and yet the promise is still as real today as the day Peter spoke those words, repent, believe in Jesus, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of and the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is how we receive him, by faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, do I need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now this is a loaded question because it goes in a lot of different doctrinal directions, depending on denominations and viewpoints. But my short answer is no. No, you do not. However, more needs to be said. Because many people have heard or been taught that a second baptism of the Holy Spirit is necessary in order to receive spiritual gifts or or power to serve God. Now, while the Bible makes it crystal clear that it is the Spirit who empowers us and disperses a wide variety of spiritual gifts to each believer in order to build up the body as a whole, the church, it is the terminology, and you may think I'm going to be splitting hairs here a little bit, which I am, but I believe it's important. It is the terminology of needing, requiring a second baptism that is problematic. It implies that the first baptism and indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation, it implies that it is somehow insufficient to both save and empower us. It's saying, yes, the Spirit's there to save you, but now he needs to come a second time to empower you. But in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, we read this. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here we see the outpouring, the generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit is linked to being saved, the work of the Holy Spirit. So if at salvation the Spirit has already been poured out generously through Jesus Christ, Why would we need a second baptism by the Spirit in order to be gifted and empowered for service? As I said, this may seem like I'm splitting hairs, but it's important. Bear me out. If you are a Christian, 
If you're a Christian, you've done that. You've repented of your sins. You've received Jesus as Savior and Lord. And, and yet you recognize that something is lacking in your life. You're lacking spiritual vitality. Perhaps you're lacking in gifting or in, in power or in zeal, passion to serve the Lord. What you need is not a second baptism of the Spirit. What you need is a greater infilling of the Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, you will repeatedly find this phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled. Luke 1.15, speaking of the Lord Jesus, says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Luke 1.42, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.67, Zechariah was filled with with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5 verse 15, Paul instructs believers, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And there's more. That's just a snapshot. This is a repeated phrase to be filled. And it's so important. Because for the believer... The Spirit never leaves. Okay, this is so important to recognize. In the Old Testament, we see that the, that the Holy Spirit could leave. The Holy Spirit was anointed upon King Saul, but upon his disobedience and rebellion, it says there came a moment where God removed the Holy Spirit from him. We see the same thing happen with Samson. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture is where it says, the Holy Spirit left him, but he was not aware. He didn't even realize when the Holy Spirit departed from him. We see that in the, whole, in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it is a new covenant. The Holy Spirit comes and abides. He does not leave. However, the Holy Spirit can increase or decrease within us. Now let me give you an example. If we envision our hearts, let, let's just imagine our hearts are a bucket, Okay? And, and the bucket needs to be filled with water, and the Spirit is the water. Sometimes, because of our sin or distractions or worries, our bucket springs a leak, and our hearts are filled less by the Spirit and more by our flesh. We run dry, as it were. And the, the Bible would describe these events as quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit. We can do this through our sin, through our disobedience. To put it another way, just like the big red tractor, the powerful engine is there all along. So the solution was not getting a second engine, but simply learning how to access and use the power already there. And so too with us. The Holy Spirit is already there. But if he's been quenched in our, in our bucket, as it were, we need a greater filling of the Spirit. And so... I know this is maybe a little bit of splitting hairs. We don't need him to come a second time with a second baptism. But sometimes, yes, we do require a renewal, a fanning of the flame, an infilling of the Spirit to rise up within us. And for many people, yes, this can be a euphoric, life-giving experience where you feel it in your bones, you feel it run through you, and it can be powerful. Some people would describe that as a baptism. I would, I would describe it as an infilling. The Spirit is already present and he's rising up within us to empower us, to cleanse us, to do what is pleasing to God in our lives and through our lives. Third question, how can I have a greater filling by the Spirit? As we've already seen, step one, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Let me just say, if you haven't yet done so, 
This is all that the Spirit requires of you and desires for you right now. Believe in Jesus. But step two is change your mindset. I refer you now to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So here we see that when we keep in step with or live in accordance with the Spirit, we change our mindset. We stop focusing on thinking about what me, myself, and I desires, and we instead start intentionally focusing on thinking about what does the Spirit desire? What does he want for me? And as we do that, as we yield our minds and our thoughts to the Spirit's desires, the greater his filling, the result of which, Paul says, is life and peace. So do you desire life and peace? Do you desire the good things that God wants for you? Then change your mindset. Change your mindset. Focus on what the Spirit desires Do not focus on your own fleshly desires. Focus on his desires for you, and you will find your mind transformed, the spirit rising up within you, and you will experience the life and peace that only God can provide. Then, if you're not sure where to begin with all of this, and it's still a little bit mysterious and confusing, let me break it down just really simple for you. Just ask. God is a good father. He loves giving good gifts to his children. If you want a greater infilling of the Holy Spirit today, just ask. Because I bet you anything, you might be surprised by by how he responds to that request. As a young man, Oswald Chambers, you might recognize his name from the man who famously wrote the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers, he battled a persistent sense of barrenness in his Christian life. And he finally wrote, I was getting desperate. I knew no one who had what I wanted. In fact, I did not know what I did want. But I knew that if what I had was all to Christianity that there was, then the thing was a fraud. Then Jesus' words in Luke 11 verse 13 got hold of me. He said, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So then at a little meeting in Danoon, a well-known lady was asked to take the after meeting. She did not speak, but set up a time of prayer, and then sang, Touch me again, Lord. I felt nothing, but I knew emphatically my time had come. I rose to my feet, and then and there I claimed the gift of the Holy Spirit in dogged committal to Jesus' words. I had no visions of heaven or of angels. I had nothing. I felt as dry and as empty as ever, no power or realization of God, no witness of the Holy Spirit. But shortly thereafter, I was asked to speak at a meeting, and 40 souls came in front to the altar call. I came to realize that God intended me, having asked, to simply take it by faith, and the power would be there. I might see it only in the backward look, but I was to reckon on the fact that God would be with me. And from that point on, Oswald Chambers ministered with an unusual power. His words and writings touched people, millions of them around the world. And when Oswald died at an early age in Egypt during World War I, an old Australian soldier whom Oswald had led to Christ had a Bible carved in stone on his tombstone. 
Its pages were turned to Luke eleven thirteen. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so, my friends, today, may we recognize that toiling our way through the Christian life in our own strength is an exercise in futility, one that the Lord never intended for his children. And so may we embrace the incredible truth that by faith the Holy Spirit has already, already been generously poured out on us to save us, to indwell us, and to empower us to serve the Lord. And may we be increasingly filled by the Spirit as we focus upon him and what he desires for us, as we ask, as we seek the Lord, so that our minds, our thoughts, our actions would be controlled evermore by the Holy Spirit and by him alone. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and for the incredible truth that you have condescended yourself to come and not only minister to us, but to dwell within us, to make your home in us. And Lord, so often in our failures, in our discouragement, in our sin, we wonder, how can it be? How can it be that you, the holy God, would do such a thing? And yet it is true. We sense your stern and your power at work within us. And so, Lord, by faith, we embrace this gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, in obedience to your words, we simply ask Holy Spirit, would you increase within us? Would you fill us? And would you help us, Lord, to to get rid of the sin, the old flesh, the desires that would drag us down, that would punch holes in our bucket, that would drain and, and, and grieve you? And so, Lord, may we instead focus on what you desire. May you increase. May the power outflow from that. And may we experience that life of peace and joy that you've promised. And so, Father, I pray that this church would be one where your Holy Spirit would be present, would be recognized, would be relied upon, and that instead of dragging around that old tractor by our own strength, Lord, would we fire up that power of the Holy Spirit within us, rely upon you in all that we say and do, and trust you for the results. This is your design, and we embrace it wholeheartedly today. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.